Hi there, and welcome to the Skylight Books author reading series. If you'd like to learn more about us and our many upcoming author events, please visit skylightbooks.com, where you can browse our inventory, buy books, and join our Friends with Benefits Club. You can also follow us on Twitter, Tumblr, and Facebook. To speak to a real live bookseller like me, please call 323-660-1175. Thanks for your support, and enjoy. Uh, anyway, you guys, without further ado, this is super exciting. Rachel is going to be the one who is going to be uh, emceeing the evening, so please put your ha hands together for the editor of this book, Rachel Kramer Bussell. Thank you. Um, sorry, it's bustle, but um, it's, it's fine. You can call me whatever. Um, and, and thank you to Skylight. We were here th three years ago for Best Women's Erotic of the Year, Volume 2, so it's really nice to be back, and happy Valentine's Day, everybody. Um, it's also really nice to be somewhere warm because we were in Chicago last night, and it was not warm. <laughs> Um, I have a few, st we have a bunch of giveaways, so please see us after. I have a couple of these stickers that say I read sexy books, and I have more that I forgot to bring, so if you really want one, you can um, talk to me and I will send you one. And then um, we also have some vibrators from Lawand. These are very beautiful, and uh, we will be giving them out to whoever asks uh, the best questions, so think about questions and uh, we have a whole bunch of lube some of you got some and some of you haven't yet but we have more than enough so come see us after and Sabrina also has some um, sexy gift bags I haven't seen them yet so I, I forgot what's in them but um okay so I uh, made a rule when I started editing this series that Every author could only be in it one time, and I was in volume one, so I now edit the stories. I don't write them for this series, so I am going to read someone else's story, and it's one of the fan favorites. It's called If the Ocean by Loretta Black, and there is a mermaid involved. Um, I'm going to read from the middle of it, and I'm not... I'm not exactly sure what else you need to know, so hopefully nothing. But if, if there is, are things you need to know, you can buy the book and then read the beginning and the end. Um, oh, and the, the theme of this book is outrageous. And hopefully you will agree that the stories we're going to hear tonight are pretty outrageous, I think. I guess, I guess outrageous is subjective, but I think, I think it's pretty safe to say that all six of the stories you're going to hear are... Um, varying degrees of outrageous. <laughs> so this is from If the Ocean by Loretta Black. What a creature, Mar Martha marveled. She raised one hand as though to touch, but caught herself and snatched it back. What was she thinking? She'd heard tell of mermaids before, and everyone knew they sought to ens ensnare foolish sailors, to take them below the waves and drain the life from them. But Martha wasn't a sailor, and she'd pulled the creature from the water, not the other way around. Do you mean to harm me, she asked, half to herself. You don't seem like you do. The mermaid tipped its head to one side, considering her. Although it couldn't speak, Martha could read intelligence in its dark gaze. It pushed itself up higher, and she was struck by how ungainly it seemed. The long tail was beautiful and gleamed in the weak sunlight, but it was useless to help the creature maneuver on the sand. It crawled closer, 
and a tremor of fear and excitement curdled in Martha's throat, letting loose in a soft whimper. A nearly human hand wrapped around her ankle and then slid up her bare calf. Martha wanted to kick it away, but she found she couldn't move. Her chest rose and fell sharply as she watched the creature slowly crawl up to cover her, rough hands moving up her thighs, lifting her wet skirts out of the way. Finally, it bared her to the hip, cool, to the hip, cool breath gusting over her thighs and the soft flesh of her cunny. Martha's delicate flesh began to tingle, her heart hammering in a mix of fear and arousal. Her cunny began to ache, shudders rolling through her in anticipation, surprising her with the intensity of it. As she watched, the creature lowered its head and inhaled deeply at the mouth of her cunny, turning her bright red with shame. Before she could scream or scramble away from it, the mermaid pressed its face between her legs and started to nuzzle the hot, wet flesh. Martha cried out, her heel scraping against the sand, but she didn't try to pull away. The mermaid pressed deeper, wrapping its hands around her legs to draw her closer, spreading her wider. A long, cool tongue ran up and down her lips and then plunged into her, filling with a, her with a dark, shuddering pleasure. Martha couldn't resist, or didn't want to. She arched her back against the sand, felt her hair coming undone as the back of her head ground, ground down. Out of her throat came a guttural cry such as she never allowed herself when she explored her sex at home. Apparently satisfied with this performance, the mermaid raised its head again and took a firmer grasp of Martha's hips. She dizzily wondered what would come next, and then she felt water lapping at her bottom and realized that the tide was rushing up the beach. She tried to sit up, but the mermaid began to tug her back down toward the water. Martha's eyes widened so she was going to be stolen away after all. She dug her fingers into the sand, but there was nothing to hold on to, no way to save herself. Another wave splashed up around them, soaking her to her shoulders. Wait, I can't swim, Martha protested, but the thing continued to pull her forward into the water. The mermaid chirped and made another low, hoarse sound in its throat that sounded somehow like a question. As Martha met its intent gaze, a sudden sense of peace washed over her. She knew somehow that the creature wouldn't harm her. She relaxed finally, letting the water take her, and wrapped her arms around the mermaid's neck. The creature looked pleased, treating her to a series of low chirps and clicks that she couldn't begin to understand, then wrapped strong arms around her waist. The feeling made Martha shudder. It had been too long since she was held by anyone and the sensation of those powerful arms around her sent heat shivering down her spine. The mermaid's skin wasn't soft, but thick and blubbery, almost like seal skin. The tail was smooth and strong between Martha's thighs, and Martha let herself move against it, grinding her sex against the slippery flesh. Martha had always enjoyed women's bodies as much as men's, maybe more. Her hands shook in anticipation as she leaned back far enough to caress the mermaid's generous breasts. She needed both hands to hold just one. She marveled at the firm flesh, thumbing over the engorged nipple with an eager breath. The mermaid watched her exploration with its dark, serious eyes. When her hand slipped lower, it leaned back to accommodate her. The thick, dark hair spilled down its shoulders and drifted through the water like seaweed. Martha ran her fingers over the pale stomach, then drifted across to touch the thicker, darker skin that covered the mermaid's hips. The skin darkened, 
as the human-like torso bled into fishtail, the difference seamless as far as she could see. There was a spot where the skin was ridged and supple and exuded the same heat as Martha's cunny. She reached down, feeling for that ridge of flesh. The flesh was much softer than elsewhere on the mermaid's body, and Martha soon discovered that it was much like her own cunny, with thick outer lips hiding a hot, slick channel. She drew her fingers up the slit, seeking out the little nub that made her writhe and kick like a horse when she stimulated herself there. The slick, fleshy lips parted for her fingers, making Martha gasp when she happened upon a large, smooth nub, easily the size of a plum. Touching it made the mermaid keen and shiver beneath her. Martha groaned, dipping her fingers into the honey-like liquid of that hot channel, then stroking over the little plum. She longed to apply her mouth to it, but the mermaid was submerged from the chest down. Martha knew she would drown if she attempted it. Instead, she lifted her hands to the creature's shoulders again and positioned herself so that she could grind her cunny down against the creature's own sex, rubbing her slick folds against the little plum and watching as unmistakable pleasure bloomed over the creature's face. Color bled in, into its cheeks and lips and flushed the pale stripe down its chest. It was then that Martha knew for sure that they weren't so different. She lowered her head and drew the creature into a slow, lustful kiss. The soft mouth tasted salty. Its tongue was pointed, its teeth sharp. Yet the creature kissed her carefully, as if aware of how easily it could hurt her. As they kissed, the creature's webbed hands roamed down Martha's flanks, then caught hold of her bottom and pressed her more sin insistently against its sex. She could feel the plum slipping and grinding against her own nub of pleasure, that warm honey sensation spreading out, coating her between her legs and down her thighs. It felt as though the plum was getting bigger as her pleasure mounted, and she moved her hips more feverishly, rolling them in a circle. She began to feel as though the creature's sex was breaching her. A part of her longed for that sensation of being filled, of being taken. She drew back for a moment, and lifting one of the creature's heavy breasts to her mouth, began to kiss and nurse on it, tending the nipple gently with her lips and tongue. She glanced down as the water shifted them apart, her eyes widening at what she saw through the water. The creature's sex truly had grown, curving out from its body like a man's cock, although its shape was different, slender and tapered to the end. The creature took hold of her hips, dragging Martha back down until their bodies met again. It was gentle when it thrust inside her, nothing like a man stuffing his cock in there the minute he got the chance. Of course Martha and Isaac had had a few goes before he got called away. There was no telling how long he'd be gone, or if he'd be back at all. And they'd both been too desperate for each other to wait and hope for the wedding that might not come. This felt better than any of the times with Isaac, even though she loved him. The mermaid groaned and made another low, questioning sound. Shh, Martha soothed, cupping her, ha her hands around its face. All is well. So there is more mermaid sex in here. Okay, our next reader. We have a couple authors who have traveled to be here, including myself. I live in New Jersey. And our next um, author actually traveled from Canada. So uh, Jane Renault, who you can find out more about at janerenault.co, 
is a long-winded, smutty wordsmith who likes to fill her pages with bisexual babes, scandal, and infidelity, smug masturbation, and a little magic. A good metaphor turns her on more than a pretty face ever could, and she is the resident smut queen at Bellessa, which you can find at bellessa.co. Jane Renault. My story is called uh, The Summer of 1669, so it, uh, it is a historical story. It's about two women who explore their queerness together, which I guess is not that outrageous, but in context, in the middle of the 17th century, coming over from France and the king is footing the bill, if they found out that you were gay, it was a big deal, so there's some outrageousness to that. Oh, thank you. And... Um, yeah, they're on the ship on the way over to what would become Canada one day. <laughs> Lying next to each other again that night, Marguerite avoided Jacqueline's face, staring awkwardly at the low overhead, petrified by nerves. She shifted restlessly on the bunk like she was trying to shimmy her frantic thoughts out through her feet. When Jacqueline's hand moved in the shadows and rested on her arm, Marguerite nearly fell out of bed. Is something wrong? Jacqueline whispered. Marguerite held her tongue for fear of saying anything. What is it? Jacqueline pleaded gently. Reluctantly, Marguerite turned to her side and faced Jacqueline. I was just thinking about how I will miss you. Though it was dark, Marguerite made out the shadow of Jacqueline's smile as it curled slowly upward. <laughs> yes, Jacqueline said, warm and knowing. I um often think about missing you, too. Tears immediately swelled in Marguerite's eyes. She was overwhelmed with as much fear as joy. She knew that such feelings couldn't be proper of a good Catholic woman, a future wife, a daughter of the king himself. And yet, before she could stop herself, Marguerite swallowed hard and inched her hand over until she found the tiniest edge of Jacqueline's finger and waited. When Jacqueline's finger twitched, welcoming her closer, Marguerite's breath caught in a gasp. Their foreheads touched, and slowly their faces tilted, welcoming one another until their lips met with as much certainty and as little sound as they could muster. When they parted, their pinky fingers entwined and breaths heaving, a smile tore through Marguerite's face. Her eyes glossed behind her lids, and she fought off sleep for as long as she could to marvel at the moment. One week later, their ship was greeted at port by a throng of excitable young men trying to get a look at their future wives. Sister Bourdon guided her flock of girls through the chaos straight to the Ursuline convent. Marguerite would stay there for the three months it would take her to meet and marry Luc. For Jacqueline, who was already promised to an officer in Ville-Marie, it was merely a place to rest for a few days until she began the next leg of her journey. Before leaving them for the night, Sister Bourdon warned the girls not to leave the convent grounds with allusions to dangers lurking in the shadows. Jacqueline flashed Marguerite the most diabolical smirk. I would like to explore these shadows, I think, she said. But Sister Bourdon said, I know what she said, Jacqueline cut her off, drawing the coin from her apron pocket. But what does Papa say? Marguerite couldn't help but smile at her audacious friend. Jacqueline grinned and flipped the coin. Both girls followed it until their king's face beamed up at them. See? Papa says to be a good girl and follow me. 
Marguerite's cheeks burned at the words, but she took Jacqueline's hand without hesitation. After slinking down the hall and out the door unseen, the pair found themselves in a deserted courtyard. Though they were surrounded by high stone walls, the aroma of pine trees and nocturnal wood fires drifted freely around them. Marguerite watched as Jacqueline twirled, her skirts lifting to reveal the whites of her fresh stockings. We made it! But Marguerite found that she couldn't return her friend's smile. What's wrong? Jacqueline said, closing the distance between them. You look like you did when you're on your first day on the ship. Jacqueline took her hand. Despite its pleasant warmth, Marguerite looked away. Come now, mon ami, there's still some time. Marguerite scoffed and squinted away the tears swelling in the corner of her eye. There will never be enough time, she blurted back. When Marguerite found her gaze, it wavered for the first time. For once, Jacqueline was speechless. After an eternity of bloated silence, Marguerite couldn't stand it any longer. She tugged on Jacqueline's hand, inviting her closer. Look, you leave for Ville-Marie very soon, and me, I will be staying here until I find a husband of my own. We are likely never to see each other again. And I would like to thank God for you. I don't think I'd have made it here without you, but I can't. Jacqueline looked hurt and pulled her hand away. Why not? Well, because I don't think he appreciates how much I want to kiss you right now. They waited just long enough to be sure that God hadn't hurled any thunder thunderbolts at them for their blasphemous confession. Then, emboldened by this defiance of everything she had ever known, Marguerite moved toward Jacqueline, who mirrored her movements until they met in the middle. With their bodies flush and nervous fingers interlocked, their foreheads found familiarity in each other. Tears swollen with love and disbelief streamed down their cheeks until finally their mouths came softly together. Bound at the lips in the middle of the quiet courtyard, they rocked and swayed with each other, like they were still on board the ship until dizziness overtook them. Pulling apart, they giggled incredulously, and Marguerite took Jacqueline by the hand, pulling her into the shadows where two walls met. Fueled by the darkness, Jacqueline took Marguerite's face between her hands, and pressing Marguerite into the bricks, kissed her with the same fervor as her storytelling, weaving fresh tales with her tongue. Marguerite wrapped her arms around Jacqueline and pulled her in so close that she was certain the only reason she could still breathe was because Jacqueline was doing it for her. The tension between Marguerite's legs was ten times what it had been in her bunk, but here in the open air of this wild new world, she felt free to explore. Cautiously, she ran a hand down Jacqueline's face and then down to the crook of her waist. Ah, yes, Jacqueline smoothed with encouragement. She ran her fingers down around the exposed back of Marguerite's neck in response, drawing shivers with her touch. Despite the layers of skirts between them, Marguerite felt a distinct clench as Jacqueline straddled her thigh. It's... Marguerite stammered, finding words impossible. The pulse between her legs was deafening. Very intense, yes, Jacqueline whispered tight in her throat. And I think... I may be so excited that I wet myself. Marguerite was oddly relieved to hear her say so, for she too was wet between her thighs. But you feel all right? Yes, more than all right. M might I, yes, uh, touch you under your skirts? Yes, Jacqueline hastily gathered the bunch of her skirt and lifted it so Marguerite's hand could snake under. The skin on her inner thigh was soft on Marguerite's fingers as she slid with careful curiosity toward the bare juncture of her groin. They both breathed deeply through their noses all along the way. Your touch is so gentle, Jacqueline cooed, yet I feel like I might burst. Me too. Their next kiss was slower, more patient than before, giving room for their bodies to take over. 
Marguerite cupped Jacqueline's fleshy mound and absorbed the warmth through her palm. You are so hot. Despite the shadow, Jacqueline's face flushed an even deeper shade of red, and she ground herself down into Marguerite's hand, rubbing the generous wetness into her palm. May I touch you like this too, Jacqueline said between soft moans. Marguerite barely had time to nod before Jacqueline was tugging at the skirts to bury a hand under in same fashion. If you want to know what happens next, you can carry on reading yourself. <laughs> So our next story, I think, is a really perfect story for uh, this election year that we're in. Um, I think that's that's all I'll say about that. Except that I hope I hope you're registered to vote, and um, that's all. We're we're here to talk about lust and love and Valentine's Day, but um, hopefully this story will both turn you on and make you want to register to vote. Uh, Sabrina, how do you say your last name? Soul. That's what I thought, but Sabrina Soul, who you can find at sabrinasoul.com, is the chica who loves love, which is perfect for Valentine's Day. She writes sexy romance stories featuring Latina heroines in search of their happily ever afters. Sabrina and her books have been featured in Entertainment Weekly, Pop Sugar, and on Book Riot's list of 100 must-read romantic comedies. Sabrina Soul. And her, her books, uh, Delicious Temptation and Delicious Complication, are up here. Hello. Um, my uh, story is called At the Pleasure of the President. And the outrageousness, I guess, is that it's the heroine who's the president. And she's actually the first Latina president. And this takes place on the eve of what would be her re-election. And very inconveniently, she's found herself very attracted to somebody she works with. Olivia busied herself with tidying up the sitting area after Jack insisted he didn't need her help with the emails. Ten minutes later, it was his turn to head to the door. Do you think you'll get any sleep tonight? He asked as she reached to undo the chain. That made her stop. She shrugged. Probably not, but I guess I should try. What about you? Same. He smiled and took a step closer. Olivia willed the butterflies to settle down. Well, no matter what happens, I feel good about the campaign we ran. Me too. Another smile, another step. They were almost touching now. She tried to control her breathing and her heart. Stop it, Olivia. You're not some silly schoolgirl. Say goodnight and send him away. Well, like I told Alicia, whatever happens, I'll always be grateful. She closed the distance between them to give, a quick, to give him a quick hug as well. But when she tried to pull away after a second, he wouldn't let her go. Whatever happens, he repeated. Desire overwhelmed her, and she had to grip his arms to steady herself. Oxygen must have stopped flowing to her brain because that could be the only reason why she did what she did next. Olivia lifted her head and kissed Jack's left cheek. His raised eyebrows told her that she had surprised him, but it was her turn to be surprised when he returned the kiss on her mouth. The election, the world, the universe were all forgotten. The only things Olivia could focus on were Jack's lips on hers. They were soft and warm, 
and dotted with trickles of the champagne they toasted with earlier. And they didn't just reawaken her slumbering libido, they brought it back to life. The kiss only lasted a few seconds, yet she knew instantly she wanted another. Jack, on the other hand, didn't look like he knew anything. He took a step back and dragged a hand through his salt and pepper hair. He shook his head and stared at the ground. Damn it, I'm so sorry, Olivia, I shouldn't have done that. His regret cooled her, her desire a few degrees, but she refused to be embarrassed this time. Don't apologize, I kissed you back, didn't I? His head shot up to look at her, so what do we do now? Hundreds of answers ran through Olivia's head. He probably expected her to tell him that they should forget about what had happened. They should go on pretending that they both didn't want something more from each other because any earlier doubts of their mutual attraction had been erased with that kiss. That emboldened her. Tomorrow could change so many things, she said as she met his eyes. My fate, my future, rests in everyone else's hands but mine. Tonight, for once, I'd like to make my own choices. Jack took her hand, and what do you choose? She smiled and stepped closer to him. You. For one night, let's forget who we are and what we do. For tonight only, I'm just Olivia. He nodded in understanding, and I'm just Jack, a man who would do anything to kiss you again. Instinctively, she licked her lips. That was all the permission he needed. Jack pulled her toward him, letting go of her hand to cup her face. Their mouths fused together once again, but this time, the kiss wasn't timid or unsure. It was frantic, frenzied. A moan escaped her, allowing Jack's tongue to seek entry and dance with hers. Lust flared from deep within her core. Olivia grabbed the, Olivia grabbed the lapels of his suit jacket, desperate to be closer to him. In return, he pressed, his, he pressed his body against hers, his need evident even through the layers of their clothes. I want you, Olivia, he groaned as he moved to nip her jaw. Yes, she sighed, I want you too, so bad. Jack stopped and lifted his head to meet her eyes. Are you sure? If someone found out, she already knew what he was going to say, so she pressed her finger against his lips. She didn't want to think about repercussions or consequences. She didn't want to think at all. Olivia only wanted to feel. My choice, remember, she said. He nodded and grabbed her hand. She led them to her bedroom in the hotel suite, stopping just inside the doorway. He began kissing her again, softly and hesitantly, as if he knew just how scared she was despite her words. It wasn't that she'd never had sex before, obviously. She and David had been married for nearly 16 years, but they'd stopped sleeping together, literally and figuratively, for five of them, even before he got sick. To his credit, he refrained from his extracurricular activities as soon as she was elected, or at least he'd been more discreet about it. And she'd been way too busy and way too paranoid to even think about having sex with another man while she was still married. Olivia wasn't just having a dry spell, she was having a dry era. That's why she was responding so intensely to Jack's touch. At least, that's what she was telling herself as his deeper kisses made her nipples strain against her bra and liquid desire pool between her thighs. I want to touch you, she admitted when he let her take a breath. Jack studied her face for a moment before reaching out to caress her cheek with his thumb. Do you know how fucking sexy you are? 
No, she said truthfully. Sexy wasn't exactly a word she'd ever described she'd ever used to describe herself, especially not during a debate or in an interview with the Washington Post. Not that she purposely tried to hide her femininity. It was just better for everyone um, if her assets weren't a distraction. During her first year in office, she accidentally wore a sleeveless dress during the annual Easter egg roll on the White House lawn. Fox News basically accused her of being a stripper. Since then, her wardrobe consisted of sensible pantsuits, skirts that fell on or below the knee, and mother-of-the-bride evening gowns. He didn't laugh at her admission. Instead, he looked at her earnestly and said, well, you are. That's when it hit her. In that moment, Jack wasn't thinking of her as the president. She was a woman he wanted to have sex with, and that thrilled her more than anything had in a very long time. Olivia stepped back. Slowly and deliberately, she began to undress. First, she unzipped her navy blue skirt and let it fall to the ground. Next came her cream-colored silk blouse and nude stockings. He stopped her before she could slide out of her full slip and bra. Let me help you, he said, his eyes dark with desire. He hooked his fingers in both straps and pulled them off her shoulders. She gasped as he lowered his head and swiped his tongue over the curve of her cleavage. Hands cupped both breasts, netting, kneading and caressing them and eliciting throaty moans she never knew she could utter. With one deft move, he yanked everything down and caught one taut nipple with his mouth. Jack, she cried out. He continued sucking and licking as his hands moved to her backside. She was quickly spinning out of control and she didn't care one bit. Do you know how many times I've dreamt about doing this, he said after a few minutes. When, he shook her he when, he shook when she shook her head, he answered his own question, thousands. That admission startled her. Really? Jack crooked an eyebrow. Yes, really. You're beautiful, Olivia. And not just your body, your mind, your spirit, your fierceness. I swear, every time you give a speech, I get a heart on. That made her laugh, and then she kissed him for all of his lovely words that made her feel so good, so desired. Well, you're pretty amazing too, but I don't think it's fair that you're still wearing clothes. Then take them off me. Our next reader is another author who has traveled to be here from Chicago. We had a little bit of a travel fiasco yesterday, so uh, our flight from Chicago got canceled, so we were rushing around. Um, so she, I, I give her an extra round of applause. Lauren Emily, who you can find online at laurenemilywrites.com, writes erotica for belessa.co. Her smut has also been published in Bust and Between the Covers, a bookstore erotica anthology. Lauren contributes to Playboy and Self and is the author of the YA novel Satellite, which you can purchase tonight. And she has another YA novel coming out next year called Two Winters, which is a retelling of Shakespeare's The Winter's Tale. And she hangs in the air and contorts her body weekly. Lauren Emily. Happy Valentine's Day. Um, another selling point for Satellite, not only is it, it's the lone YA novel up here, 
Um, another selling point for that is it is partly set in LA. Um, a friend of mine used to live here. I still have friends here and I really love to visit. So thank you for having me. Um, my story is called Spin. It is a female-female story. Uh, what makes it outrageous, number one, it's a public sex act. Um, number two, said public sex act takes place in an aerial sling, which is a very long loop of fabric uh, that hangs from the ceiling and can hold up to like 800 pounds. So these are two women who have come up in circus school together and are now doing a public show as a sling duo. They've known each other for a long time, and now they're going to do something very different together. Spinning is tricky business. Some aerialists can't handle it at all. Motion sickness leaving them heaving into the rosin bucket, sipping water or frantically chewing ginger candy to settle their stomachs. You're always going faster than it looks to your audience, and when you're suspended above with only one mat on the ground that'll hardly cushion the blow if you fall, the stakes are high and they are scary. Me? I loved spinning from day one. I get off on the risk, the looming crash of brain and body. If I don't concentrate on the fabric, take deep breaths, just plain enjoy the ride, I'm toast as I've learned the hard way after wiping out, slamming my shoulder into hard ground one too many times, or staggering out of the fabric begging for mercy. But when I catch the moment, spin just right, find that sweet spot of chaos and control, there's no greater high. You shift forward just slightly and your tits sink into my back. I grip the fabric above me even harder, my arch starting to cramp, but I'm intoxicated from your lips brushing the nape of my neck where an errant strand has escaped from my shellacked topknot. I know from the way the sling pulls, the audience's ooze, the unobtrusive flash of the camera down below, that you're extending your leg behind you, a flawless arabesque like you learned in Parisian Ballet Conservatory with Monsieur Reynard years and years before we met. Better to distract everyone from your fingers playing lower and lower as my clit hardens, ignoring three layers of thong, thick tights, and iridescent dance trunks. I bite my lip at the hedonism of it all. You like? You whisper, as the tenor vocalist on the Philip Glass track sounds a round oh in harmony with my own. When you nip my earlobe, my panties become soaked, but the performer in me wants to milk this moment for all it's worth. I grab the fabric with my extended arm and flip out, dangling above the ground with only one elbow hooked in the fabric to the crowd's delight. We're going full-on improv, and I can already tell I'm a hair's breadth from having an orgasm in the air. Your mouth is an O of surprise, like you didn't know I had it in me. Ha! Two can play this spin. Our rotation slows slightly as I wrap my legs around the sling, climbing it on one side until I'm standing over you, looking down at your wicked grin. You know just what I'm thinking as I throw my legs over my head, inverting high in the air, my legs in a flawless straddle. The audience gasps. Down below, you twist yourself into a girl on the moon, side-saddling the sling with one perfect leg crossed over the other, your hand reaching up to caress my cheek, neck muscles straining so your mouth can meet mine. It's an upside-down kiss that would make Spider-Man jealous. I drink it in, your tongue smooth as glass as it plays with mine, 
our lips dancing around one another delicately, then demanding. This moment is everything I hoped it would be. The spectators cheer their approval. This is an arts crowd. No one blinks at girl on girl. As we dive deeper, devouring each other and traveling in a gentle circle as the piano chords build, you break away just enough to brush my lips as you whisper, cocoon, whatever you want, I say, my voice as husky as yours. Standing opposite each other, we touch toes, my lips trembling, my pussy wet with anticipation, as we reach behind us, gently but efficiently fanning out the taut fabric until it billows around us. Now we're more rocking than spinning. You're straddling me once again, but I have questions. You want me? Since the first time I stuck rhinestones on your face, you whisper in my ear. I pull back, conscious of the warm air around us and the fact that people are waiting for us to do something, anything, when all I want is for you to fuck me. My adrenaline is on full blast, my instincts screaming, you could fall at any moment. But I lean into the spin, not knowing what will happen next, total disaster or utter bliss. As I slide my hand around your neck, you pull your face into an exaggerated, mock, terrified expression. You look like this, you say, mascaraed eyes so wide they might pop out of your skull at any second, slapping your hands home alone style, and I burst out laughing. But seriously, I whisper, what do we do now? You arch an eyebrow, smirking, and I wonder breathlessly whether you've planned this airborne seduction all along. Lie back. I do just that, settling into the womb-like atmosphere and knowing the fabric will hold and catch me, us. Scooting the fabric under my arms, I run my fingers along the edges, the most finicky part that never billows out when you want it to. I play lightly along them, leaning my head back and making a bit of it. I see the audience upside down and smile at the distorted view, one that circus performers all seem to share as we cast off the comforts of homes, day jobs, and steady paychecks in favor of this wild life that underpays us, co coats us in sweat and sequins, and leaves us fulfilled enough for 10 normal folks. In the cocoon, you rub my clit, toying with it like glasses musicians at the piano keys. I arch my hips, moving my arms outside the sling in a way that I hope is graceful, trying not to let my features go into ecstasy twist. But the way you're touching me, like you've already always known exactly what I like, combining featherlight strokes with gentle flicks, challenges my frozen smile. You've worked your hand underneath my costume without removing my bottoms. We all have strong hands. As you glide two fingers into me, I can feel the permanent trapeze callus on your finger, and somehow that turns me on even more. I hear the audience laughing. Fuck. Then I realize what you're doing, poking your legs out of the other side of the cocoon, toes pointed, thighs and calves and feet articulating gorgeous patterns. Meanwhile, in the sling, you, down, you yank down my layers enough to suck my clit as you fuck me with your fingers. Oh, I cry, the world spinning upside down. The audience definitely heard that one. But at this point, I don't care because I'm fucking your beautiful face and your pretty lips feel so wonderful against my hardened nub as you eat me like you're starving, swirling your legs as I return one arm back in the sling to push you harder against me, stroking your smooth skull, keeping my eyes wide open and gasping out loud as the stained glass windows of the church lose focus and I'm lost in you. Thank you.
Thank you, Lauren. Um, there's one seat here and one seat here if anyone who's standing wants to come up here. Um, okay, we have two more authors for you. C.D. Rice, who you can find online at cdrice.com, is a New York Times bestselling author, which inflated her ego for about a minute. She promised her husband they'd only move to Los Angeles for three years while she got her master's degree in screenwriting from USC. A decade later, they're still there, here. And you can get her books. I'm going to switch the order of these because marriage games comes before separation games. Um, I mean, I guess for some people it might, that might be different. But in, the, in, the, in these books, these books uh, they come that, in that order. So um, C.D. Rice. You came. All of you came. You showed up. I'm, I can't even. How many people are here? So um, these stories have been fantastic. Thank you, all of you. Um, I specialize in the emotionally outrageous. If you're not looking at this book and saying, don't fuck him, my God, he's going to break your heart, then I haven't done my job. So uh, have you all seen The Return of Martin Gare? I mean, the original one, not the Jodie Foster. Okay, so this is a piece of a much bigger novel that I have not written yet. <laughs> um, that is basically the return of Martin Gare, um, where a woman thinks that she has killed her husband. It doesn't happen in the return of Martin Gare, but it happens here. And he returns, and he was kind of an asshole. But then the new guy is actually not such an asshole. And it turns out it's not her husband, but I just gave away the whole book, so you don't have to buy it now. <laughs> okay. I didn't need these when I started writing this, by the way. <laughs> this is called The King's Return, which is not the title of the book, which is the book is going to be, I don't know what the title is going to be. My husband leaned over the table and picked up my fork. I kept my hands in my lap because they were twisting around each other, tensing and releasing. I glanced around the restaurant. No one was looking back. Two Michelin stars meant the staff watched without watching. We sailed at six, he said, spearing a cube of meat from Skiathos. Corbin pronounced it perfectly like the native he was, with a twist to his tongue and throat that sounded alien and brutal. So, I said, you always wanted to leave early. We were out to sea overnight. He lifted his fork to my face. Open, my love. Since he returned, he'd been hard to resist. He changed in so many ways. He dropped all the guile and pretense. He was either open and honest or he'd become a better liar since I left him behind. I opened my mouth and he fed me. In the morning, I swam, he said. I chewed but tasted nothing. And you pulled anchor and left. Eyes on my plate, he moved my food around looking for the perfect piece. He'd kept a short beard since he came back from the dead. It added a roughness that wasn't reflected in his personality anymore. I'd always believed the lies of a clean-shaven man. I'd learned to distrust a, distrust a husband with perfectly straight part in his hair and impeccable grooming. The man who returned wore the same suits, but with an ease he'd never had before. I left you the life raft. Of course, he held up the fork again, half a nautical mile away. I'm not the same person, I said, letting the food hover. You tell me another lie or try to convince me I'm crazy and I'll kill you again. I have no doubt of it. My escape from his manipulations and lies had been clean. I had a new life alone. I couldn't do it again. I took the fork and fed myself. Like I said, 
I washed the tasteless morsel down with a gulp of $400 wine. I left you a raft. When I didn't hear from you, I thought the sharks got you. The shark was you, he smiled. There wasn't humor in his grin, but pride. But I don't want to get hung up on the trivial. What do you want? I met his gaze across the table, the flicker of candlelight sharpening the hard edges of his cheeks and jaw, his black eyebrows arched over thick lashes and hazel irises. The waiter refilled our water glasses. He didn't ask a question or interrupt, or if he did, we didn't hear him. I want you, he said. A short laugh escaped my throat. You'll never own me. Men like you don't change. I believe that's true. He swirled his wine. Then we understand each other. Not fully, he took a sip and placed his glass in front of him, sucking his lips in before he continued. I'm going to ask you to believe something different. I'm asking you to believe something extraordinary. Three days before, he'd shown up in the New York office of the company he owned and taken the intern's desk. In the five years between his death and that moment, I'd gotten rid of everyone who had known him. His family was far away in Greece. To everyone at the company, he was a handsome stranger in a suit whose appearance made me the president of a multinational conglomerate choke on her salad. She says, you've heard the term gaslighting. Have I been different since I've been back? He'd left me alone for three days. I had no idea where he was staying, and I told myself I didn't care. He sent a card through inter-office mail, just a phone number. I called it when I'd stopped shaking. There's always a honeymoon phase with you guys. Has it been a honeymoon? It hadn't been, not by the usual standards. No romantic talk, no roses, no promises to change, nothing. I'm asking you to believe that the man who broke you down wasn't who I really was. If you can believe that, I'll believe you weren't trying to murder me. I don't care what you believe. He picked up the wine bottle and offered to top up my glass. No, I said. I didn't want my judgment clouded. He'd always had a way of making me want him, even when he was in the middle of a lie. What I believe is secondary, he poured himself more wine. My husband never took a drop more than a single glass, all the better to control me. What would the authorities believe? You're blackmailing me? Harsh words. What else would you call it? He turned his glass absently, lost in thought. My husband pierced the space and time with his attention, a trait I loved when I met him and distrusted later on. I met a thoughtful man, but after our wedding day, his decision-making got so fast, I made poor choices just to keep up. I call it, I call it a test, a deal. For me, it's a second chance. For you, it may start as a way to understand what happened between us. I understand it all too well. I had the empty bank account to prove it. And don't apologize. Your apologies mean nothing then, and they'll mean nothing now. What's the deal then, I said, curiously taking the wheel. I want to hear it. Putting the glass down, he leaned his elbows on the table and folded his hands like a schoolboy. I won't touch you. Not a hand on your body. I haven't earned that. I took a sip of wine, nodding into the glass. Damn straight. Do you remember when we were first together? You were so young, and you'd do whatever I wanted. We'd met when I was 17, and he was 25. He wouldn't lay a hand on me until my 18th birthday. But that didn't keep us from enjoying each other. Back then, he'd been commanding and dominant, but gentle and sweet. His tender humiliations had driven me wild with lust. I felt a pulse of wetness between my legs just remembering them. A case of misplaced trust, I said, crossing my legs. You're wet, he said. I can tell. You're squeezing your legs together to tamp it down, but it's only making it worse. 
I swallowed. It had been too long since I'd felt that damp throb. He'd been my first and my last, a man like any other, devil and saint. My beautiful pet, he whispered in the voice of a man he was before we were married, uncross your legs. I thought I'd forgotten that voice, but my body remembered it all too well. I straightened my legs and pressed my knees together. His nod was the slightest affirmation, but it was enough to swell my building lust. Apart, he said, to the width of your shoulders. My body obliged, overruling my judgment. I pushed my wine glass away. What do you want? I asked. Eden, he unwove his hands and laid them flat on the tablecloth. You brought me the only happiness I've ever had, and I betrayed you. I took everything from you and convinced you it was a gift. You believed in me. You trusted me when no one else would. I want us to start over. I want you to misplace your trust again. Or accuse me of murder. For every stick, there is a carrot, which is the chance to find what we lost. I was insane, and I knew it, but I had my own carrot, and it wasn't re regaining the most beautiful thing in my life. It wasn't the magnetism of his gaze or the sharp cut of his jaw under the soft blades of his beard. I'd never know what he, what he wanted unless I stepped into his trap. You won't step foot in my house, I said, and I'm not staying in yours, agreed. Hotel, on my card, anything you want, pet. You're buying dinner. He smiled and got out his wallet. I realized my legs were still open. Is that it? Spoiler alert, things get a lot kinkier in the rest of the story. So I, I, I encourage you to read the rest of it. Um, we are, um, we're at our last reader, but I wanted to um, tell you a few things about this series. Uh, you can find out more about it at bweoftheyear.com. And uh, this volume five came out in December and volume six is coming out this December, and I am taking submissions for volume seven, and the guidelines are at bwtheyear.com under call for submissions, and the theme for that one is surprise. So basically, I want you to surprise me. Um, and uh, I think that's everything for now. So think of your questions, because we are going to be giving away vibrators um, to the best questions. Okay, so our final reader, I'm pretty sure many of you are here to see her. Uh, and she also has a novel, Night Shift, which I encourage you to check out. It's a choose-your-own erotic fantasy novel. So there are lots of happy endings. Joanna Angel is an award-winning adult film star, director, producer, best-selling author, entrepreneur, and CEO of the venerated adult studio Burning Angel Entertainment. She was inducted into AVN's Hall of Fame in 2016 and continues to make her mark on the adult industry and the world at large. Joanna Angel. Good evening, everyone. Okay, my chapter is called One Last Gangbang. Okay. I might be addicted to pornography. I love everything about it. The engineered plot lines meeting the obvious sexual enthusiasm of the performers and my own pervy voyeurism as I shout, 
fucker harder at the screen while vigorously rubbing my own clit. I mean, I'm not like a person who has stacks of DVDs lying around and spends all of my time on a sticky air mattress or anything like that. I actually have a Tempur-Pedic foam mattress, but it's just as sticky. I've been producing and performing in porn for over 15 years now. Being a sexual performer turns me from a mundane, quasi-normal person into a bona fide superhero. Call me pussy girl. I'll stop crime by fucking every cock in sight until those evildoers are drained. By the age of 36, I'd made almost every type of scene imaginable. Threesomes and foursomes and orgies and double penetration sex scenes. I've role played as everything from a maid to a schoolgirl to a teacher, a zombie, a vampire, and every other monster imaginable. You could say that I've pretty much done it all. I fucked on desks in a fitted blazer and pleated pants and then I drenched them in my own squirt. I fucked on circular beds, yes, they exist, in bikinis made of nothing but Swarovski crystals. I fucked on couches and striped knee socks, on love seats and laundry, on, on sectionals with a pin-up pompadour in my hair and bright red lips. I've poured oil all over myself inside of inflatable swimming pools in the middle of living rooms for no reason. I've gotten down and dirty outside underneath a bridge that overlooks the Eiffel Tower and on a rock off the coast of Spain. I love every aspect of the sexual fantasy world that I've deliberately and literally inserted myself into. I'm like a John, hiring all the top-tier escorts in Vegas, making my wildest sexual fantasies come to life. Only I'm the sex worker and the John in one, sitting in a director's chair with a dick inside my ass. <laughs> but my favorite scenes to shoot were always gangbangs. Gangbangs are absurdly hot. There's really no other way to describe them. It's not at all a natural human sex act, although it feels like a testament to the human spirit when a bunch of dudes who have no business shoving their dicks into the same pussy at the same time can do a serious and unbelievably sexy way. I get a rush thinking about all the many one-on-one -on -one scenarios for what seem like a few spectacular moments. I am the center of attention of these men's worlds, and their only goal is to ravish my body and make me quake with cinematic intense orgasms. I am known sometimes to be a bit of a brat, and this is the only way. I am the literal center of attention. Plus, I love the challenge of it. Like how many times during a gangbang, like how many times during a gangbang do I feel like I'm going to drown in a sea of dick? As if there are alternative waves of dicks and pulsating pleasure constantly crashing me all the time and I can't even manage a breath. I love being taken for a ride. I love the thrill of losing complete control over my limbs and my senses. My reward at the end is being showered in an ocean of cum and then going home and eating a very large pizza, filling me up even more, feeling like such a good whore. Which is why for my 37th birthday, I decided to organize the greatest gangbang ever filmed. I'd shot two gangbangs previously, and this was going to be my highest achievement because I was 37 years old, and this should be my very last gangbang I ever filmed. I mean, I'd been doing this for 15 years already. 
I wanted this to make my previous gangbangs look like scenes from low-budget softcore nudie flicks on late-night cable. I wanted to be made into a screen warrior queen, crowned with semen on top of a throne of cocks. The monarchy clearly stable under my reign. <laughs> so I got to work getting my maximum gangbang together. I picked a day far enough in advance to make sure there was ample time to coordinate all the pieces of the penis puzzle together. A gangbang is like a symphony. Everything and everyone must work together in harmony. One minor chord could damage the flow and draw the line between seeing a person getting beautifully pounded by five large cocks and watching five men sit there and stressfully and unsuccessfully jerk off. It's like a rock band, but in your pussy. <laughs> There's a front man leading the way, doing all the showy stuff. There's a lead guitarist doing all the solos and riffs in your asshole. There's a second guitarist supporting the lead, providing a rhythmic drive, a bass player who acts as the nice, non-egomaniacal glue to hold everyone together and keep things moving without stealing the spotlight. And a drummer, a drummer anchors everything down, getting the least amount of credit for actually doing the most amount of work. <laughs> a lot of women make the mistake that thinking that the perfect gangbang is a mix of five men you really want to fuck. But in actuality, the perfect gangbang is a mix of five men who can comfortably have their sweat dripping all over one another, their balls touching, their dicks coexisting in the same wet hole while focusing on the main objective of the day, which is to fuck the person in the center in the most animalistic way possible. Yeah. <laughs> I can keep going, is that okay? All right. The first man I picked for my epic night of pleasure was a guy named Simon Holtz, a fellow industry veteran and a virtuoso of vagina stimulation. A bearded silver fox of Romanian-German descent, Simon is the type of guy Generation X housewives fantasize about while blowing their average-looking husbands. He's not only gorgeous, but he has a very zen personality. Nothing matters to him more than pleasure. When I called him up to ask if he'd be interested in participating in my gangbang, he said, my darling Joanna. I'd be simply honored to fuck every inch of your body. And of course, for every calm and silver, you need a fiery gold, which is where Micah comes in. Micah is the flare man. Everything he does with his body carries a sheen of intensity. He's Latino. He's the perfect combination of Spanish and Colombian and Colombian, his body is chiseled to perfection. His abs are gleaming with tan skin and triceps that could crack a walnut. His energy all the time is on. This guy won't stop until the job is done. I mean it, he would tire me out in his best way during the scene. And next was Nick. Nick was a kind-hearted guy from Canada. He's another guy who I'd worked on and off with for a long time, a good 10 years. I call him the boyfriend of the group. He's like such a sweetie. He has blonde hair and dimples, both on his face and his ass. He's like a boy. He's like a, a, a guy in a boy band if the member grew up and actually stayed hot. It was, it felt oddly pure every time we fucked. He's sensual. He'll hold my head up in place when I'm getting fucked too hard. Or he'll grab a pillow for my knees if I'm being dragged across the concrete while being deep-throated. You know, things like that. And then there's Bo. Bo is a really good southern boy. 
And yeah, he has a delicious southern drawl that makes East Coast girls fling their thongs. The first time I hired him, he showed up on set and he said, morning, gorgeous. And I thought he was a flirty neighbor from the house next door until I saw his nine-inch cock and then I knew he was in the right place. Last but not least, there's Johnny. Johnny is a sex soldier. He's solidly built with a tall, stoic face. He was clearly, he clearly and deliberately follows orders. If I tell him to suck my clit, he will. If I tell him to get behind me and rapidly fill a hole, there will be no hesitation. He's got a cock like a rifle, and he's ready to shoot it off when any commanding officer tells him. He mostly communicates with, with a series of grunts and moans, and we really don't speak much at all, but that's fine with me. With five guys writing and willing, I just needed a location. My first gangbang was filmed in an alleyway on the wrong side of town. In that scenario, I played a schoolgirl who got lost on the way home. My second gangbang was in a brightly lit living room where I wore neon lingerie without any real context to the scene other to, than the fact that I was horny and there. So for my third and final gangbang, I chose a dungeon, which is something seedy enough for my dark and depraved side, but with a large selection of clean and comfortable bondage furniture and things you care about at age 37, like running electricity and a shower. It's basically like if a clean living room in a dirty alleyway had a baby. It's the perfect place for a horny, almost 37-year-old to get her rocks off. So now that I had a working group of five stallions, I booked the appropriate date to fuck every hole in my body. I had two, two camera guys, a photographer, a makeup artist, and a dungeon set up to my wildest specifications. I arrived at the dungeon a few hours before the shoot to get my makeup done. I sat in the chair. The lighting crew picked the perfect mix of eerie blues and reds to set the ambiance for the event. The lights had to be moody enough because, you know, we were in a dungeon, but they still had to be bright enough to see all, you know, the appropriate penetration going on. Experienced lighting guys in the industry had a very important challenge. I'd love to see a second key grip in Hollywood or whatever light a dungeon and a butthole at the same time. Let's see how well they do. <laughs> the guys arrived one by one, the older men arriving first shaking each other's hands, getting ready to do some la last minute brush trims. Well, the younger ones came in with their personalities dominating the air around them. Johnny spritzed himself with cologne. Bo made some small talk about the pork ribs he'd been smoking all night, and Micah was doing some stretches. It's like the mix were prepared, it's like the, a mix of men preparing for a battle and a romantic date mixed in one. After a few grueling hours of sitting patiently in a chair, getting my makeup done and not having sex, it was time to make my Cinderella-esque entrance to the stage. As I gracefully slid on a skin-tight latex dress, I mean nothing says I'm ready for sex more than a dress that's made out of plastic, <laughs> I walked into the center of the dungeon and I called everyone over. Thank you very much for being with me today, I said. I gave a quick rundown of the shots and I couldn't wait any longer. I had the honor of making the sound on the clapboard and I shouted, action. I rubbed my clit. I fingered myself furiously. One finger, two fingers, three fingers, stabbing my own insides like I was trying to murder my pussy. I was breathing and moaning and grunting and transforming into a succubus waiting for Lucifer to give me my treat. Only today, I had five devils all to myself. What did I do to be so lucky? I stuck a fourth finger inside of me and then smack. Micah smacked my arm away from my body. You don't get to come from your hand today, he said. 
And he was right. I didn't sit in rush hour traffic and then go through three hours of hair and makeup and wardrobe to come for my own body part. I could do that on my own time on my couch. My organ was destined, my orgasm was destined to be achieved through multiple penetration. So let's get on with it. Slut. I heard Micah shout in a commanding voice, you will be fucked in every way we want unless you give us the information you need. He slapped his cock against the side of my black executioner hood. Will you tell us what we wish to know? I wrote a really good plot that day. <laughs> Never, I shouted as loud as I could, my voice breathy from horniness and muffled slightly from the covering of my head. Then we have no choice, men. We must fuck her. <laughs> Micah removed the hood and I was suddenly faced with a tidal wave of orgasm, each man clamoring for some sort of penetration stroking privilege. I felt Simon's cock first sliding swiftly into my mouth, not even giving me a chance to breathe. His hands weaving into my hair with fierce control, he slid himself expertly down my throat. I moaned onto his desk, <laughs> on a desk, his dick, giving him... <laughs> <laughs> my God, yes, he shouted, pounding my mouth harder and harder. Bo slid underneath me, and he was fingering my ass. Johnny positioned himself underneath me. Slowly but surely, he slid himself into my anus. I heard Simon say, make room. And oh no, Simon did not mean make room on the couch, even though it was very full with men that day. He meant make room in my asshole, while there was already a dick in my asshole. Oh yes, he meant double anal. I felt a second cock enter my behind. Yes, yes! This was double anal. I was completely stuffed like a glove. My body felt like it was doing everything it possibly could. It was literally and figuratively stretched to capacity. I couldn't believe my own ass. I was so proud of it. Cheerleaders were inside of it doing an epic victory dance. How long can I keep two cocks inside of me? I had no idea. I wanted to keep going, and I did. I got more and more turned on. My insides welcomed the two cocks, and it didn't even feel stretched anymore, like they were just supposed to be there all the time. Would one cock even be enough for me after this? I could feel the guys in my ass getting close to their own climaxes, the balls slapping against my ass cheeks, move, moving higher around the skin and their dicks becoming tauter. Five cocks were around me, all ready to shower me with their hot jizz. Everybody clapped. I never felt so free. I did it. And well, let me just tell you something. This didn't really wind up being my last gangbang. Six months later, I did another one. I told you, I have an addiction to pornography. In that later gangbang, I played a teacher who fucked all my students. If you remember, I told you in my first gangbang I played a schoolgirl. I've officially been in porn long enough to have come full circle, <laughs> graduating from being a schoolgirl to a school teacher. Somewhere down the line, maybe I'll be a superintendent, and maybe after I die, they'll have a hallway named after me or something like that. It's my 40th birthday right around the corner. What kind of gangbang should I do next? <laughs> Thank you, Joanna. And if you thought you heard the whole story, she skipped a lot. So I definitely encourage you to check out her story and check out her book, Night Shift. Um, how much time do we have for questions? Do we, we have a little time for questions. We definitely have, we have 15 minutes for questions. So please ask us anything. Um, yes. 
Shane. Yeah. I mean, and this is a, yeah. No, autobiography. So are you working on a longer autobiography? And why did you change the name of that? Um, I didn't know if, you know, I think it's rude to put people in a book without really talking to them. Also, I forgot to say this before I started. I oh. Oh, I forgot to say before I started that I did dedicate this chapter to Bill Bailey, who's been in many of my gangbangs, and I hope he's gangbanging somewhere up in heaven right now. Um, I, I just, I changed the names because I, I, I didn't want to go and ask everybody's permission, and I also wanted to change certain personality attributes that just made a little more sense for a fictional story, and I don't know, I just, you know. <laughs> you were there. You were part of the lighting crew. You got, you got a few sentences. Um, I did that a bit in my YA novel. There are certain chapters where, uh, one narrator is addressing the other because they're uh, trading stories of their, their past. They have a very long history together. Um, I, don't always, I don't always do that where the protagonist addresses somebody else and that's how the story goes. But uh, for me, that just this is a story I wrote very quickly. Um, by the time I decided to submit for consideration, I was under a very tight deadline and I don't know, I was working on pure instinct at that point. It just, it felt right for that character at that point in time and at that point in her journey in her relationship with uh, her duo partner turned lover. Hey, you, and then you, and then you, and then you. Uh, my question is about the theme of the book. Well, that's a good question. So for the first two, I think, or three, I, now I can't remember, but I didn't have a theme. And I sort of felt like two things. I thought it would help guide writers to have kind of a very broad theme that basically I think almost anything could go into if you kind of put a gloss on it of outrageous or... Um, volume four, I think it was the first three didn't have themes. Volume four was outsiders and risk, and those were also pretty broad. And um, then the next one is the theme is adventure. So I try to pick themes that are kind of broad enough that they can encompass all sorts of things because I don't, I don't want to bore the reader. Like I don't want them to be just waiting. Like where's the outrageous part? And like I'm just gonna like skip everything else and get to like, you know, the, the good parts, because I hope they're all good parts. Um, and I, I guess I, it is actually kind of challenging to pick a theme that's not too specific, because I've also edited uh, other anthologies that are specific on a topic like bondage or spanking. And I think those, you know, if you're into bondage or spanking, you're probably going to like them. But I, for these, I, I kind of want a theme that anyone could pick up. Like, you don't have to have read erotica or be into any one thing. And hopefully, I mean, my hope is that people will read something in these books that 
they wouldn't have thought that they would be into, but because of the way the story is told, they can appreciate it or they're turned on by it or entertained or all of those things. Um, you know, and I think sometimes you just have to be a little adventurous in your reading. And I think an anthology can do that. Like you might, you, I think the biggest compliment I hear from readers is that they think that stories are too short and they want to read a full length version. And I think that's great. Like I hope people finish reading and they don't feel disappointed that it's that length, but that they want to read more of the author's work. And some authors like um, C.D. Rice said um, have either done it, like she did it where they took something that they intend to be part of something longer or sometimes they start writing and they're like, oh, I'm at my 5,000 word limit and I want to keep going. And, you know, I say to them, well, I mean, don't cut it short, like just to submit it to my book. Like if you want to keep going, keep going and then send me something else. But, or you could take a snapshot and send it to me. So you had a question? Yes. And she has a story in, that opens this book that is a, a business uh, deal gone um, erotic, I guess. Um, and we heard her read some of it last night, and it's a, it's a very interesting business deal. Does anyone else want to answer? Not from this book because I will admit I have I have not I have uh, yeah thank you Joanna <laughs> I have yet to read all of it. Um, what really got me into writing uh, erotica was someone who's not an erotica author per se. Uh, her name's Lauren Dane, and uh, I see a lot of nodding heads. Yes, I love her so much. Um, when I first started writing, reading just romance as a whole, um, I stumbled onto her uh, Brown Family series, which is this. Uh, series of siblings like living on the West Coast and just all their different romantic entanglements. And I really loved how she married like the very, very sexy and sexual with the emotional as well. And I felt like I hadn't seen that in a lot of more erotic writing I had I had delved into. And when I started writing my own, like I really channeled a lot of Lauren Dane. And when I when I met her, um I was very like articulate and I said, my name's Lauren too. We have the same name. <laughs> I'm such a cool person. Um, I, that, she wasn't uh, in this book, but um, I'll say what my uh, inspiration for uh, a lot of things, uh, uh, working in the sex industry in general and, um, and for erotic writing is um, Tristan Terramino. 
Um, and while I, I, has, I don't know if she's ever written fiction, so pardon me for not knowing what I somebody I admire. Um, yeah, yeah, no, she has. Okay. She has written a few short stories, okay. but not too many. Okay. But they're very but, good. But early on, I remember reading the, the Ultimate Guide to Anal Sex for Women, um, which inspired me to have anal sex. So we can thank that book. Um, but it, and then you I went should to definitely a, check out that book. I yeah. don't, I, if they don't have it here, you can ask. I'm sure they Once can order it for time. you. Yeah. And um, I remember going to a, a signing for that book, and I, I, I saw her speak. And she was so funny and so honest. And she had this way of loving sex but not being very serious about it. And she just um, made everything very relatable. Um, and uh, so she in, inspired me a lot. Um, yeah. Thank you, Tristan. Do any of you, or should I go? Okay. Wait, I think, okay, you have a question. I'm sorry, wait, you, and then I, I know you, you, okay, you, and then you. I'll, I'll get to as many people as I can. Yes. No, I, I don't know. It's just kind of just a. You know, <laughs> no, if I told all of you, you'd all make gangbangs. <laughs> then I'd be out of business. Uh, just, I think um, in general, my casting in porn, it, it's like a, and I think a lot of that actually comes from being a writer. I'm, I'm very um, uh, an intuitive person. I'm always listening to people. I'm always watching people. I'm always analyzing people. I mean, I feel like that's what that's what all of us writers do. You, you're like a creep. You're just sitting there. <laughs> over eavesdropping on people's conversations and just really kind of like figuring out what character everyone in the world is. And I always do that on a porn set. And I always do that every time I meet anyone in the industry and just, I don't know, all the men in porn, I just, I just kind of know who, who should share buttholes together and, and who shouldn't, you know? I don't, it's just kind of like an intuitive thing of knowing what to put together. But I did say in the chapter, it's an important thing because I was glad you, you know, you, you, you listened to me when I hired you for a gangbang. And I was like, okay, do you trust me? Let me take it from here. Because a lot of times when, um, a, a lot of women do think the perfect gangbang is five men that they pick, you know, and it's like, well, pick like one or two, and then I need to let those two men pick the rest of the men, you know, because they need to, they, they have to work with each other more, more than you, if that makes any sense, you know, you need, you need a good symmetry going on, you know, like I said, it's like a band, you know, yeah. <laughs> I mean, everything, I think, for anybody who's written a book here, I mean, everything is, is a challenge with writing a book. Um, getting it started, that's the hardest part, the first page, the first sentence, and, f and the last. Yeah, the beginning, yeah. Yeah, the beginning, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, but sometimes it's just you start and you've got, like, 50 pages and you're so proud of yourself and you're like, oh my God, I have so, I have so much more to go. I can't be proud of myself at all. Um, I, I think it's just committing to really, to getting it done. I mean, it's a very, you, I, I'm a big uh, fan of procrastinating everything to the last minute, like almost everything I could possibly do, taxes, porn scripts, you know, <laughs> my homework when I was growing up. Uh, you, can't, you can't write a book the night before it's due. You just, you can't. 
you can't, so that's a problem. <laughs> um, so it's just figuring out the time, figuring out your limit, like when, how many hours can I write a day until everything else just comes out like, like shit? You know, you have to like know when to stop because usually you walk away from something when it's done. You're not gonna be done in a day, so you have to figure out what your limit is a day. So I, I make my limit, I, I try to write, I won't step away from the computer unless I write 3,000 words. Um, yeah, because if you can write 3,000 words a day, you know, and that sometimes turns to like 2,500, you know. But it's like you need to have like a goal of like what is, do have you, can you figure out is what you shouldn't go over and you shouldn't go under. Because if you go under, you didn't get enough done. If you go over, it's just going to be delusional at that point. So. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Any question? Welcome. This is like, sort of like the question down asked, but like, quick question. When I was 12 years old, I remember reading the novel Jaws. I mean, I have ones that are way more formative. Um, so I went to Catholic school, which, and now I'm here. Um, so uh, is anyone familiar with Judy Bloom's Forever? Yes. yes. So um, it's not erotica because it is YA. It's young adult. You can't have erotic young adult. That's wrong and illegal. Um so this is about a young woman's first sexual relationship, um, and it was written in the 70s, but much of it, you know, carries over into today. Um, the, a lot of positivity, like, she goes to get the pill, and, like, it's just a thing she does, which blew my fucking mind. Um, and uh, her boyfriend names his penis Ralph. So there's a lot of Ralph in there. When I first started dating a guy... His father's name was Ralph. <laughs> it was a really good book, though. That's where I learned, like, what an orgasm was. And I mean, you know, I was a Catholic schoolgirl. Like, they weren't teaching us that there. So, yeah, forever. Good stuff. Anyone else? I have... I don't really need this. I'm a really loud person. <laughs> oh, <sorry. laughs> so, I don't know if y'all have... Robin. Um, in the interest of time, we have time for two more questions. So, but you can come see us and get your book signed and ask us questions over there. Um, so, okay, you, and then you. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Okay. I mean, in, in my first novel, I mean, it, yeah, there there are a lot of things that Cleese wouldn't let me do. 
You mean you but put it, you had it in and then they they took it out? Yeah, I, sort of, I figured out after uh, a while, you know. Um, probably, wait, can you share one of them at least? Now I feel like everyone wants no, to No, you know, sometimes it's stuff with a lot of drugs. They don't like that because it violates some consent issues with an erotic, you know. I'm like, but it's fun to have sex when you're fucked up. Like, it's like, I have good memories of those, you know. They didn't want me to put stuff like that in a book, so I didn't. I had to make everyone very sober in the novel. It's <laughs> difficult, you know. Um, but I wasn't ashamed of anything, um, but just certain. Sometimes within erotica, much like in porn, there's just certain things you can't put into porn, but you could put in a regular movie, you know. But. Yeah, I can't say there's anything that I haven't written because of an like yeah, a sense of shame. It's just sometimes I haven't been able to figure out like the logistics of it yet, so it's still like digesting. <laughs> Um, I mean, writing erotica at all for me was, again, having grown up Catholic, like getting over a lot of shame, just period. Um, my one thing was I didn't want to write about a threesome until I'd experienced it. Um, once I had, I started writing a lot of threesomes. <laughs> So on that same note, I've always, um, my books are always um, male-female, and um, some of my story ideas I get in dreams, and one day I woke up and I had a complete story outline for a male-male-female, and it took me a while to think if I was the right person to write the story um, because of who my readers are. Um, but I put it out on Twitter, and everybody's like, yeah, go for it. So that's something that's down the line. Um, it's not written yet. I just have the outline. <laughs> you can follow her on social media. Wait, tell us your Twitter and Instagram so you, they can follow you and find out when, it, when it's coming out. Um, Twitter, I'm at the Romance Chica. And on Instagram, I'm Sabrina the Romance Chica. <laughs> okay, your question, and then we're going to do these giveaways. For me, it's like the total opposite. I, if it's really good, I'm not thinking at all about how I'm going to write it down because I'm not going to be able to. I'm not going to capture something that's already good. If I'm writing about it, it's not a good sign because I'm rewriting the moment to make it better than real life. And I'm editing that moment so it's what I actually wanted to have happen. <laughs> so. I agree. Um, for me, the same answer. I feel like the things that are autobiographical that I've written in erotica or, or even that I've written essays about are just things that I can't stop thinking about after, whether sometimes because they were good, sometimes because they were bad, sometimes just various memorable things. And then I think the writing kind of becomes its own third th or second version of that, because even if it's a totally true story, you're still editing it in your head to, to make it, you know, cohesive. I think, um, I know most people know me for the porn. But I, I really have been a writer my whole life, like really ever since I was like in kindergarten, I wrote stories. It was just always something I've done, always been my passion in life. And I think, I think always, 24 seven, there's always like a 
thing in the back of my head, like I'm living life in one part of my brain and in the other part of my brain, it's always, I'm figuring out how to tell the story of what's happening at the same moment. During sex, during eating, during anything. It's, it's why I do a lot of the things I do. A lot of times I say yes to really bad ideas because I'm like, oh, this will be a good story. I don't know. I just, it's kind of always, I've always wanted to like experience life so I have cool things to write about. Um, and I, I think it's, it's just, just always, it's just natural. So it doesn't really distract me or maybe I'm always kind of distracted, but there's just a running thing in the back of my head kind of figuring out how I would tell everything that's always happening. Thank you for all your questions. Um, thank you. Um, I, we are gonna be here, we are gonna give away the vibrators, but we're gonna be right there signing books. So buy them at the front and then come, and we will sign them. We have lots of lube, like lots and lots and lots of, from Uber Lube, one of our sponsors. And then we have these two, um, Vibrators from Lawand that are really beautiful. They they have not been opened. The the plastic I had to open and take a photo, but I promise you the packages have not been opened. Um, would you mind picking? Yeah, I have to say this was the, one of the most entertaining nights I've ever had at Skylight Books. So give it up for all of these amazing. You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget, you can listen to this and all of our other great podcasts at skylightbooks.com. Thanks again for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.